Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Books Are Chic. I have a chic author and a chic book today on the podcast. I'm so excited. Um, She reached out to me on Instagram and said, have you heard of this person? She's the epitome of chic. And I hadn't. And then the rest is history. I went on a deep dive. I was totally in. I am so excited to welcome Joy Calloway today. Hi, Joy. Hi, Courtney. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) I am so excited. We are here to talk about her book, The Grand Design, which is a novel about Dorothy Draper, who's this like iconic interior decorator who, if you just Google her like I did, you will lose hours (laughs) of like the most amazing pictures. Like she just seemed so amazing. So I can't wait to sort of dive into this. But first, Joy, you are new to me. Like we've never chatted before. So I love this. I love meeting new authors. I'm so happy we connected. Give us a little rundown. We'll get, we're going to go right into Dorothy, but give us a rundown of your sort of writing journey, like how you got here, that whole thing. Well, I think I have a lot of the same history as a lot of authors, which is when I was a little kid, I loved writing stories. That was, I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of TV, actually. I was allowed to watch Nick at Night on Friday. <laughs> I loved Nick at Night. <laughs> no, not Nick at Night. I did watch T- Nick at Night. Oh, but, did um, you watch TGIF? TGIF? Sorry. Yeah, TGIF. <laughs> I mean, we're already friends. TGIF was like. It was, it was. I know. Sometimes I try to play those shows for my kids, but um. Anyway, so I was allowed to watch like one hour of TV on Fridays and it was a big deal. Um, So the rest of the time in my childhood, I had a lot of like, you know, downtime, creative time. And so I always had to write stories and write plays. And, you know, weirdly enough, a lot of those stories, a lot of those plays were historical looking back. Um, I don't know how either in school or maybe just through conversation with like family or friends, I would somehow like, you know, come upon an interesting topic I liked. And then I would kind of write stories about that. Like particularly, I remember um, the Titanic when I was a kid, just hearing about that. And then I would, I wrote a magazine all about the Titanic. And then I was trying to sell it door to door, which was hilarious. So I think like from a young age, I really loved it. And then, you know, as you get older, like in high school, college, um, I just knew that I was really bad at math and had no interest in it. So I wanted to pick something that wouldn't involve, you know, math for a career. And um, for some reason, I just didn't even think about writing. I ended up going like a PR journalism route in college. Um, But then uh, probably, I guess I would have throughout this whole time rather though I was a really, really like voracious reader, just read all the time. Um, A lot of the classic books, like my mom actually would read aloud to us, like the classic novels, like Little Women, Secret Mm -hmm. Garden, stuff like that. And I always tend to go to those even now for like comfort reads. Like that's really weird, but I'll probably, I always go to the classics for that. Yeah. Um, And so uh, when I got probably, I guess it was like around 09, 09 or 10, something like that. um, I was reading, it was one summer where I just read like even more than normal. And I just thought I'm going to try to write a book. And then it just occurred to me, I kind of remembered how much I loved to write as a kid. And I think sometimes if we think about, everybody has gifts. And if you think about the gifts you had, it's like a little kid, generally speaking, you still have those. I mean, Mm -hmm. some aren't applicable. Like, (laughs) I don't know. 
you can't be a unicorn if you're pretending to be a unicorn before, but you know, yeah, (laughs) most of them like do have some type of application where you can be, um, you, you tend to still love the same things you did as a child, um, and have those same interests. And so it was really fun to kind of realize, like when I started writing novels that like, I'd always loved to write. Um, and then, so I, I wrote my first novel. It was terrible. It was like two books too long. And, you know, made all these mistakes. Like the, the, the uh, character woke up from a dream, you know, in the first scene, which is a big like publishing no-no. Um, and then I wrote two others and I kind of dabbled around in genres. Like one was romance, straight like contemporary romance. One was kind of like this fantasy situation where, <laughs> where like all the power went out, a power grids went out. And so you had to kind of like live that like you did back in the day, which... I mean, kind of historical, I guess. And so I saw a thread through all those, which was history. Like everything I did had some element of history in it. So, you know, history is always something, something that I realized in my writing was kind of coming through. And so I, I ended up writing my first straight historical novel about my family history. Um, it was about my maternal great-great-grandmother and her artist siblings who mm-hmm. lived in the Gilded Age Bronx and um, were kind of inducted into an artist society similar to a Parisian salon on Fifth Avenue. And um, it, was a, a, it was a special story to me because um, we grew up surrounded by, like my whole family talks about ancestry as if those people are still around. Mm-hmm. And you hear the stories, like they're very vibrant. They're very like neat stories. And we would go um, have Christmas at my grandparents' house, gosh, for as long as I could remember. And every time you go into their house, the tree was in their living room and you were surrounded by portraits of that family. So one Christmas, I just saw that and thought, this is the story I want to write. It was so remarkable. Um, they were like a concert pianist, a hat maker, um, a writer Amazing. and a, a painter. And so I wrote that book and that book was called the Fifth Avenue Artist Society ended up being my debut novel. And, um, the rest is kind of history. I mean, I love historical fiction. I love romance. I always have a romance in my books. Mm-hmm. And um, I just love diving into a time period that we're never going to experience again and kind of, you know, figuring out a lot of these, a lot of these stories about, are about pioneering women, um, which, you know, back then around the Gilded Age era, even into the 40s during Dorothy Draper's time, you know, people were really paving the way women were paving the way for us today so it's fun for me to write write those stories and to kind of put a spotlight on stories I love stories that have not been told before Mm -hmm. and characters that are sometimes you might not even know they're real they're real to me but um shine the spotlight on people that are just your you know either celebrities that people really haven't explored in fiction or um, celebrities to me, like my family. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, like for Dorothy, like I said, I love like all vintage, like I have tons of different coffee table books that I collect just about like, you know, actresses or clothing from like the forties, fifties, sixties. Like I love all vintage things. And so when you brought up Dorothy, I'm like, I've never heard of her. Like And she was so iconic. That's why like, it's so fun. And like, it's just, you know, kudos to you for bringing people, like you said, sort of to the spotlight for people to be like, wow, like 
this woman's amazing, you know, like she paved the way for so many and, you know, interior design is such a huge field and business and, you know, so many people I feel like on Instagram these days, like influencers and stuff are, are, you know, into interior design. And so like, she obviously had a huge piece into, you know, that and, you know, how far it's come. So, so my question to next question to you, now that we know how you got to writing. How did you discover Dorothy Draper? Well, um, we have, my family has a very long history in West Virginia. So my, on my dad's side, it's like eight generations back, which is, um, to clarify, that's where the Greenbrier is. It's in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Um, and the Greenbrier is arguably the most iconic Dorothy Draper you know, design. It is um, basically museum to her still. The design work really hasn't, Carlton Varney has obviously expanded on it, but the whole like atmosphere is very similar to what she originally did in the forties. And um, when you walk into the hotel, you know, you can't help, you're not, this isn't, her design work is not something that you just walk into and you're like, well, that's nice. You notice it. It's yeah. not just, it's not like, it's hard to explain, but I was trying to, I was talking to someone else about this. You know, when you walk into like a, I don't know, a, uh, a Marriott or something like that, mm-hmm. generally you walk in and you're like, oh, this feels nice, you know, yeah. but you're not like commenting on like, wow, look at the walls. Like it's not necessarily a spectacle. It's kind of just background. Um, at the Greenbrier and with Dorothy, it's the, the showpiece. It's the it's the most eye-catching thing in the hotel. I mean, you're, it's a conversation starter and she intended that to be the case. Um, so from the time I was little, I had known about her. I didn't really know much about her. I just knew that I liked her designs and that they made me feel happy when I was around them. Um, but to be honest, I didn't know much about her until I started researching this book. Um, but during a conversation I had with my grandpa's, see, we have family reunions at the Greenbrier every year. And both my grandpas have since passed away, but um, it was around 2016, I think. We were there for um, a family reunion, and the Greenbrier has this great high tea that all guests come to. Um, It's really, really neat. It's in their lobby. And um, we were sitting there, and I had just come off a history tour because I always took the history tours from Dr. Conti, who's the Greenbrier staff historian. He just retired last year. And um, I was sitting in the Victorian writing room, which is one of Dorothy Draper's most photographed and iconic rooms. Um, They actually have a big writing desk in there that you can, they encourage you to kind of write letters still. Um, It's just really neat. So we were all, my family was sitting in there um, having tea and, you know, cookies. And I was sitting with my grandpas and I was talking to them about the history. And one of my grandpas said, well, you can't really separate Dorothy Draper and the Greenbrier's histories. They're kind of complimentary because in um, the forties, the Greenbrier had actually, during World War II, the Greenbrier had been taken over by the government. So the government actually owned it and um, it had become an army hospital and it had actually been renamed to Ashford General Hospital. Um, the Greenbrier's history stretches back to like 1770s. So really, really Easy. old place. Um, but, and so it had been like this kind of playground for American aristocracy for like ever. It just, that's just how it had been. And then, you know, World War II comes around and the place is a hospital, an army hospital, and all the finery kind of is just done. Like there's surgical rooms, 
there's rehab rooms. It's now just a totally, it's been transformed into a hospital. So after the war, um, if Dorothy Draper hadn't been hired to come back and fix it, <laughs> the Greenbrier could have just been a building, mm-hmm. you know, it could have just been a history. It probably right. wouldn't be what it is today. And she really, she was a celebrity. She was the Martha Stewart of her time. So she was an, an iron heiress and a, on one side and a shipping heiress on another side. And she was totally among like the Astors. And if you've watched like the Gilded Age show, um, her family was old money New York. So like um, the type where you didn't flaunt your money, like you, you know, kind of hid out. Um, so that's what always made it remarkable for me to think that she went from heiress to CEO because I was just a big no-no at the time. Like you didn't right. do that. Um, but anyway, she came back and she redid the Greenbrier as only she could have done because she brought celebrities with her. Um, back to the Greenbrier to kind of celebrate this opening. She put this big splashy design on the Greenbrier that was covered in almost every newspaper you could imagine. Every time she did something, it was either (laughs) hated by the press or, you know, like praised by the press. So either way, you're going to get coverage, which is the point of good PR anyway, which is nice. So people hiring her knew it was going to be splashy no matter what. So they're like, oh, great. This is the perfect world. So she did that for the Greenbrier. And in the same way, the Greenbrier's commitment to honoring her style and keeping it has kind of made her immortal in a lot of ways and kind of mm-hmm. carried on her legacy. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. She just was, it's just, it came to be because it, she just was such an interesting character to me. And like hearing my grandparent, my grandpa's articulate kind of the relationship, um, that's really what prompted me to write the book. I've been wanting to write a book set at the Greenbrier forever. Mm-hmm. I just had to figure out what story that was. And so when they said, you know, what about, they, they were talking about, oh, you can't really separate these legacies. Kind of a, a light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, this is the story I need to tell for sure. You know? Yeah. And you, but like you have not even just like you hearing about it and being like, this is the story I need to tell. And you had already written a historical fiction novel, but like you had a personal tie and could go and like be there and see it firsthand. And so what sort of, aside from like, you grew up going to the Greenbrier and you could go and see it. And it is like, people should totally Google it because it's so like bold and different and it is so unique. I like love to go there. It looks so amazing. But what, how did you just like kick off your research for that? Cause I feel like you probably had like a plethora and like you said, and we were chatting um, before we started recording, a huge piece was Carlton Varney who worked with her and then I guess essentially took over mm-hmm. the company to run it. Yeah, you know, his, the, the research for this book was really um, extensive because I was dealing with two, in my opinion, two main characters that had really deep histories that people knew. It wasn't just mm-hmm. my own history or unknown history that I could, um, that really didn't have much information. So they gave me a lot of margin for fiction. Like, that's not how this was. Um, so in a way, I felt a lot of pressure because I needed to get it right hundred um, percent as much as I could. Um, and so I did, I knew a lot of the Greenbrier history, as I mentioned, I'd been going there forever and had read almost every history book that I could find. Um, and one particularly good one is um, the history of the Greenbrier by Dr. Bob Conti. And I actually, he was such a huge resource for me, the historian at the Greenbrier. I would ask him all kinds of questions. He knew everything. He would, um, hand, you know, give me things he thought would be helpful. And he actually gave me a 1908 pamphlet 
of what happened in that season at the Greenbrier, which totally informed um, my 1908 section and what happened with Dorothy in that that, um, part, because I could pull real names of who was there and I could pull actual events. Some woman had just written down everything, like every party, every, you know, what food was served. So the 1908 section of the Greenbrier is just, it's very accurate, but, but um, Dr. Conti was just such a huge resource for any question I had. And it really helped. And also um, newspapers.com for both of, you know, the Greenbrier and for Dorothy was so helpful because I looked up every mention I could find in the eras I could find. So, you know, every event that went on or every, every um, project she did, or every quote or interview she gave, I read. Um, and then so for Dorothy's side of things, a lot of the, you know, obviously Dr. Um, Mr. Varney's books were instrumental. I mean, I wouldn't have even been able to touch who she was without reading his, his books. Um, but also, like I mentioned, she, she was um, very publicized. So every interview she did, she had a column in Good Housekeeping. She wrote books herself. So reading those to get her tone and um, doing research into just you know, even ancestry stuff, just kind of looking at like what her life, where she had been in her life and, um, and all that was just such a, and pictures even like there were pictures on in the newspapers that I'd never seen before of her, um, just to get a good sense of who she was. And so those are the main points of research for me for this mm-hmm. book. So, yeah, I would say that's, that's kind of how I kind of formed the, the two characters, but I will say it did make me uncomfortable because <laughs> inevitably when you're telling a story about two main characters of history sometimes you're juggling the history yeah. like you know you're telling a story and it's you're picking pieces of this up and allowing pieces of this to mm-hmm. fall in this up and allowing pieces of this one to fall and um it was a delicate balance but uh the main thing with with the with my book is um main question that kind of informed it was the why of why dorothy went from heiress to ceo mm-hmm know when we have as as I mentioned about my writing as a kid you know at some point in my childhood somebody that wasn't my family told me I had a good that I had a skill that writing was a gift for me Mm -hmm. and it kind of validated what I was feeling and I think that um that's probably true of most people that end up kind of using their gifts later in life someone has told them and validated that for them and I could never find that in the research with Dorothy. And so I kept thinking like, in order to make, in order to do an about face like she did mm-hmm. and risk the scandal that came with it, somebody would have had to say something. And so um, my book kind of tries to answer that question. That's like a pretty big gap in the research. And I found some clues, but yeah, that was I, the tricky part. I always, like, it's so fascinating to me because the research part of historical novels, you know, set around real people, like it must be so fun, but it must get like overwhelming too. And like, it does not sound like you did not have, you know, like a loss, you know, for, for research. Like sometimes people find like, you know, different historical, you know, figures and it's like, there's not a lot out there. And so like, you know, but like, it seems like you had more than enough and to be able to talk to people who are like experts, because like we mentioned Mm -hmm. before, Mr. Varney worked with her and then we'll give your little blurb about him because this is so interesting. 
So I was really terrified to show him this book because he's the expert. So Mr. Varney actually worked as an assistant for her company as a young man. He was a Spanish teacher. Um, and I don't even, to be honest, I, I wanted him to write his, he's since passed, he passed away in July. Um, but I really was hoping maybe someone else would write his biography. Um, but I've always wanted to know, you know, similarly for him, you know, what prompted him to come to work for her, um, which I never found out. But eventually he did. He really quickly, I think, made the shift from Spanish teacher to, um, to designer. And he would say decorator. Designer really is not what they do, is what he would tell me. Decorator, decorator okay. Much better, um, much better term. And the term that she would actually prefer, Dorothy Wood. Um, but Mr. Varney, you know, I... When I got my advanced copies, I shipped off a copy to him and I was really nervous. So I thought, you know, what if he thinks I got things wrong or, or what if he thinks that I didn't portray her correctly or, or in the right way. And uh, he ended up getting it and he called me and just was gushing about it and said how wonderful it was and how much I got right, which was so amazing. It's such a great feeling. And so he said, do you want a blurb for your book? And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> so <laughs> he gave me that. And, you know, we had to change the title midway through and he was just so kind. He would call and offer me these amazing su suggestions because he is so creative. Um, and he always talked about all the projects he was doing. He, I really thought he would love to be like 300 for sure. Um, he had so many projects all the time. It's such a role model. And he was absolutely the personification of just the Dorothy Draper brand and his brand. Um, he has these, like, I would say he even, takes her designs and notches them up. He has these enormous, like just beautiful, like colorful, like wallpapers and um, carpets and things like that, that I just adore. But um, he just was so kind. So then we actually went to the Dorothy Draper decorating weekend, which everyone should go to because it is fantastic. You get to go to the Greenbrier and they have cocktail parties and you meet the Dorothy Draper interior design team. And they walk you through kind of the ins and outs of their strategy and their design work. And you get to go into the upholstery shop, which is like a full-time place at the Greenbrier because they're constantly redoing, you know, chairs and couches and things like that. And um, usually Mr. Varney would be there and he would make a, you know, do like a, a talk and a Q&A. And he was recovering from pneumonia at this time. So he wasn't actually able to be there. And um, he still did an hour and a half long Zoom presentation though, which was remarkable. Yeah. And people asking him questions, he's firing off answers, you know. And, um, then after his presentation, I decided I was going to go down to the Dorothy Draper home store at the Greenbrier, which has all kinds of cool stuff in it. Anything from, you know, like pillows to tumblers, things like that. And I was looking around and one of his staff said, hold on a second and walked back and came back with a big bouquet of flowers for me because he had missed me. And I was like, this is crazy. So for your listeners, who don't know, um, Mr. Varney was the personal decorator to Judy Garland and to Ethel Merman and to the Carters, um, Jimmy Carter and tons of other people. I mean, he did cruise ships, he did hotels, <laughs> he did, you know, all kinds of decorated and transformed all kinds of places. And one of the things that will always stay with me is um, during the decorating weekend and during his Q&A session, they played a clip from one of Dorothy Draper's um, like TV interviews. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions she was asked was, what do you think needs decorating? And I was able to ask um, Mr. Varney the same question. What did he think needs decorating most now? And he said, schools. 
And I thought that was such a cool thing and it's and so right on, you know? Um, and I think Dorothy Draper at the, at the time it said hospitals and she was doing, she did hospitals. And um, recently uh, Mr. Varney had t- told me about how Lily Pulitzer actually is doing hospitals in Florida, like some maternity wards, which seems really cool. That seems so um, cool. Yeah. But schools, I was like, that's such a great idea. You know, kids are walking into school. They need a, they need to be, to feel confident, to feel happy. And really Dorothy's whole motivation was to help people feel happy. Mm-hmm. She lived through two world wars, the, De- uh, the great depression and a very high profile divorce that was actually initiated on the eve of the depression. Um, and she actually, her husband ultimately married a, a nice woman, apparently, but a, a a woman who was 20 years, her junior, also a fellow decorator in New York. Um, and <laughs> so she went through a lot and I think she was an empath. She used to have her assistants kind of cut out her newspapers for her. All the bad news would be cut out when she'd get it. Um, and I do think that, you know, she was a big proponent of the power of positive thinking throughout her life. And I think her design work was just meant to lift people's spirits, you know, you can do another situation, but for a minute, you can make them happy if they walk into something and it's gorgeous. So, um, yes, I think Mr. Varney just was, he was carrying that on so well. And he was just such a, a positive, wonderful influence on the world. And so I'm just, and I know because I've met his staff, I know that they're going to continue on this like wonderful legacy of color that he left behind. Yeah, I watched a bunch of different interviews on YouTube and then there's like a whole page to him on the green, like the Dorothy Draper website. And you can like, that was one of the things I got lost in because he just looked so friendly and like you want to give him a big squeeze. (laughs) And one of the, the facts that I was, it was so funny. I'm reading about him and he was born in Massachusetts in a very, very, very small town called Mahant, which is very small. And one of my best friends lives there now and you don't hear about it a lot. And I'm not sure, like, I think when it was way back in the day, you know, you can see Boston, like from it, it's like sort of on the outskirts, um, across the, the ocean, but, um, or the coast, but yeah, I was just like, Oh my God, that's so funny. Cause you don't hear about it. Like you don't, it's a lot of, old, it was a lot of old school Bostonians. And now I think more families are going there and they, they have like the beach and stuff, but I was like, Oh, that's so fun. But like I said, I, and then I'm scrolling through your page and I'm like, Oh my gosh, like he passed away. And he was, you know, up until he passed away doing all these things and you could see and, and how like vibrant and such a force he seemed to be. And like you said, you know, and his team just, still carrying on her vision and, you know, the purpose of what the Dorothy Draper company is all about. But I didn't know though, in like researching him, I, did he do Betty Davis too? Yes. Okay. I didn't, but the Judy Garland thing I never saw. And that's like huge. Yeah. He had all kinds of stories about them too. (laughs) And like, I wish I could remember them right now, but, um, lots of stories about each of them and just how different each of them were. So, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that their design work in their, in their house was like them, you know, um, I can't, I mean, they probably were like a lot. I feel like, <laughs> and you know, they had their taste. I just thought about this right now, but you know, it's interesting because Mr. Varney had a lot of celebrity clients and, um, he did their personal residences. He also did commercial stuff. He did 
a lot of different things. And you look at his personality and it completely lends itself to that type of work and being so versatile and so, you know, um, diverse in his projects. But you look at Dorothy Mm -hmm. Draper and you realize that 99% of her stuff is commercial. And it's because she was very adamant, you know, she started out as a celebrity, you know, heiress with, and the acceptable thing, of course, is if you have a skill set, you just like kind of trade it off with your heiress family neighbors. Like you'll, sure, I'll come help you with your decorating. And at that point, it wasn't really a profession anyway, but um, she was kind of, that's how she kind of got started was people would love her, her design and designs in her house and be like, well, can I buy your home? Or will you help me with mine? And she did, but they, they started not to like it because um, she would just say, well, I'm doing it this way. This is what is right. This is what looks good. And they, mm-hmm. if they disagreed, she would disagree with them. So there wasn't pretty soon thereafter, it was clear that she wasn't going to be a residential designer. You know, she was going to be somebody who did commercial spaces. And that was a lot better because they just kind of allowed her, you know, free reign to do her thing. And that was, yeah. Without kind of restriction, you know, the Gilded Age was the era of beige and gold. I mean, gold, but beige too. And she had a really famous quote that said, show me nothing that looks like gravy. So she was not a beige fan. No beige. (laughs) I mean, well, yeah. Yeah. And then you see the, then you see the pictures of her stuff and it's like, wow. Like colors that I feel like she was taking chances, which obviously like helped elevate her to the, you know, the top of her game at that time, instead of Mm -hmm. just sort of following what, you know, everybody else was doing. I was going to ask you what was like one of the funnest facts that you found out about her? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, Okay. I'm going to tell you something I really love that I found out actually later uh, because of Mr. Varney's book. He has her biography called the Draper touch. Mr. Varney wrote it and he just released a new version of that book that had some other new like pictures and stuff in it. Um, so I had read a book by, um, let's see. No, I can't remember the actual title. Um, mind. Um, but anyways, one of the, <laughs> sorry, I lost my train of thought there. One of the most interesting things though, is that Dorothy, she always, she actually, um, like I mentioned, she was an empath. And so I think things affected her really deeply. And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of interesting things about her. Um, but she ignored the world wars and, you know, ignored, like tried to ignore as best she could and turn her eyes to like positive things. Um, kind of the fallout from her divorce too. And when she was in Reno getting a divorce, which her husband left her and then she's being followed by paparazzi and it bless you in Reno and she's having her picture taken and put in the papers as this, you know, people like in a way like the press shaming her, right. For divorcing this guy who left her Mm -hmm. and um, Mr. Varney in his book had a bunch of letters um, from her during that time when she was in Reno, cause she had to stay there for a certain amount of time in order to get divorced. And so, you know, you'd expect someone to just be bitter, you yeah. know, or just be angry. Mm-hmm. And instead in her, in her letters, she's like, wow, I, you know, I hiked here today and it was so pretty. And, you know, 
and all this stuff. And I'm sitting here thinking, how did you do that? But it's just a testament to who she was. And I think reading those letters um, was so neat for me and just a confirmation that she was the strong woman I portrayed her to be. I mean, that's kind of obvious by what she'd accomplished, but I just loved hearing her words and, and really having it confirmed that she was, kind of, she was an empath, so she did protect herself, but just also like, it was a lesson for me to approach things as best I could with, and like seeing the little things. So she would talk about the pretty flowers she saw on her hike or whatever, um, instead of talking about, well, this, I can't believe I'm out here. Why do I have to be here? This is terrible, yeah. you know, but she yeah. could have. So I guess it's just a lesson for me to try to approach things in um, a joyful, colorful way or try to like, I don't know, and it's helpful. It does help your, I feel like mental health too, to just not ignore things. I don't think that's the right way to do it, but to try to in, in moments where it's difficult to also see beauty and to see your, see blessings too in certain things. I love um, that. Which is a lesson I definitely learned from her. Yeah, I love that. And I think, like I said, I think this book, because it has such personal ties to you, like you were the perfect, like you guys were meant to meet up in this life and, and you were meant to write this book and, and like how amazing that you had that connection with Mr. Varney and like, you can like such a gift, um, you know, cause that would be like the next best thing to, to Dorothy and, and somebody mm-hmm. so close to her and you could like get intense. And it's always so fun to me to hear, especially about historical fiction, the whys behind it and the how, and like yours is just like such a great story. So I just, yeah, thank you. What I, I, well, what I didn't mention really is I always, there's always something in my family history in my books. There always will be. It just, it makes everything more real for me. Um, mm-hmm. And I mentioned West Virginia is such a special place to me. It's really my second home. I love it up there. It's gorgeous. Um, and a lot of my family still lives there, but my grandpa, my maternal grandpa um, was from Burlington, North Carolina, which is, and he was in school at Duke university, played football there. And um, when he was in school, he was the oldest of of the kids in his family. And when he was at Duke um, playing, his dad was a ribbon mill manager. And his last job before retirement was a mill in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. So they lived um, up on this hill in this historic home in White Sulphur and it was the forties and my grandpa um, would come home from college and need a summer job. And so he came home one summer, Dorothy Draper was decorating the Greenbrier and he was studying engineering. And so they said, well, could you come help us install this fire alarm system for the hotel because Mm -hmm. Dorothy Draper is decorating. And so he remembers being in there and like seeing things come in and like all this stuff. So it's just a really cool like personal Did he ever see her? No, no. But he, um, he's in my book though. He's like he I, makes a cameo in the book. Yeah, I love that. I love and I love that you tie in your family because I think that that just makes it so much more special. And okay, so you did on your social media, you had a cover reveal for your next book, which I'm blanking on the title. And so all the pretty places. All the pretty places. And so give us a little spiel about what that's about. And then I'm guessing that has some tie to your family as well. Yes, it does. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) I have not gotten my 
snappy spiel down yet. So That's okay. We it, This is All a right. good practicing standpoint. We it want is. to hear. <laughs> it is. So, okay. It's set um, in Rye, New York during the panic of 1893. And the main character is my great-great-grandmother, Sadie Jenkins. Her, her main name is Fremd. So in this book, it's Sadie Fremd. And um, she, from the time she was a little kid, was just really obsessed with horticulture and plants, which was a natural fit because her dad, um, who was a German immigrant, he came to America speaking three languages, none of them English, um, came to the slums of New York, and he ended up meeting his wife there. She taught him English. He actually had a horticulture degree from Germany um, and got on planting with some illustrious planter. We don't really know who it was. We, we were thinking it's either Olmsted or, or Charles Vox. And um, he got on planting with one of them. And somewhere along the line, they said, you know, there's a need for a nursery here in this part of the country. So he kind of ran with that idea. And by the time Sadie was born, the nursery, which is called Rye Nurseries, um, had become the largest nursery in the Northeast. And it did source to Olmsted and Vox and provided landscape architect services, as well as just, you know, they would provide the plants for people like Olmsted if they were doing like a big um, garden, private garden or public garden. Mm-hmm. And so from the time she was a little kid, she was around the greenhouses um, and would be taken along to, you know, plantings at these industrialist mansions and things like that. And just had a real knack for loved plants, loved everything about the process, loved the um, like populating new varieties, loved um, the design work aspect, loved the business aspect, all of it. And so she wants to take over the business, does from a very young age. She has two brothers. So that's a problem, right? So back then, you know, (laughs) my great, great, great grandfather, of course, wouldn't want his sons to take the business over. Right. So she, she wants to take the business over. He says no, but she's sure she can convince him. And as her two brothers kind of head off in different directions, one is a landscape architect for the Flaglers in Florida at their, the Ponce de Leon and the, um, the breakers at those hotels. Mm-hmm. And the other one is interested in politics. So he goes off too, and she's left and she's like, okay, now's my chance. But as she starts kind of taking, trying to convince her dad to give her the business, she goes, is still going to these plantings, you know, these big Gilded Age mansions. And she starts to see that people are lingering outside of the gates of these mansions. And they're looking in and it's like, you know, people off the railroad, people that have been laid off from their job, homeless people, all these people wandering past these gates. And so she has a conversation with someone that prompts her to realize that natural beauty is not available to everyone. Mm -hmm. Natural beauty during the Gilded Age was really reserved for the elite. Even Central Park, which was supposed to be the People's Park, was not the People's Park. Mm -hmm. It was a place to promenade for the wealthy. It was very far removed from the tenements. It was very far removed from the factories and people that really could use to see the miracle of flowers and realize that there's hope. And so she starts to realize that if she can take over the nurseries, it's not just for her own ambition, but maybe she can change access to natural beauty, that maybe she can initiate change for her town that so far doesn't have a public park. And a lot of people are, have fallen on extremely hard times because of the panic of 1893. 
which that was the worst economic downturn before the depression. It laid off hundreds and thousands of people, you know, in their town. Um, and a lot of businesses kind of were crumbling and going under too. So at a time of a lot of despair, she starts to realize the need for, for um, natural beauty and really tries to convince her dad that she's the person to give the company to so she can accomplish it. Now, did you have, um, like, do you have like pictures or things that you could like resort like from way, 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 way back then? Or like, are you just relying on like stories through your family and? No, we have like lots of stuff. Uh, My grandma, um, my grandma's parents passed away pretty young. And so her dad actually, uh, and her, her dad and her mom actually owned the nurseries for a while and they did end up going under during the depression, but, um, after the depression actually, but, um, we have lots of stuff, even from like, as far as back as the start of the nurseries, which was 1870. Um, we have like pamphlets from them. We have have timesheets, we have like, you know, photos and letters. Um, actually her, one of her dinner gowns is hanging in my in my living room. So my gosh, that's amazing. It's so fun. And it's just, I want to honor people who I feel like didn't get that, you know, that, um, that I feel like deserve to have their stories told who, who led a remarkable life, you know, Mm -hmm. she wasn't president. (laughs) She wasn't the CEO of some major corporation, but my whole thing is, I think sometimes people discount their lives and they think, Oh, I've lived a a small life. I've lived a life that is just little. Um, It mattered to some people, but it didn't matter to a lot. And I think that's just true. I think that all lives are big lives. And so I just really wanted to tell her story because I think it was so important. Her life was so important to so many people ultimately. Um, But no one really knew it beyond our family. And so it was just kind of an honor for me to, to write it down and to tell it. No, absolutely. And when, and when does that come out? That comes out May 17th. Okay. That's amazing. That sounds great. And, and, and she did huge things. And even though, like you said, it might not have been something that, you know, we all just associate with huge, like that's a huge accomplishment and a trailblazer. So that sounds amazing. Okay. Now I'm, I'm going to be so curious to know your answers to, to the chic list questions. Um, cause you probably have some really good ones. Um, <laughs> okay. What three celebrities, authors, figures, living or dead, would you want to have a book club with? Of course, Dorothy Draper, of course. Um, Edith Wharton. Oh, that's and a good one. Jennifer Garner. Ooh, I feel like Jennifer Garner would love Dorothy Draper. Cause I feel like she always is like showcasing Martha Stewart or Enoch. Ina Garten. Uh, yeah. Ina Garten. She's from West Virginia too. She's from Charleston. Right. Yeah. So she's, um, and just, she, I love her. She's just so down to earth. Um, Did just you send her a book? You know it. Yes. <laughs> Good answer. I'm like, she deserves a book. Um, Did she, like, I wonder if she's been to the Green Briar. I feel like that seems like a huge, you know, staple there. It's, it's only two hours from Charleston where she's from. And so yeah. when they actually did, when, um, so the governor of West Virginia actually owns the Greenbrier, his daughter's running it now, of course, conflict of interest. Um, <laughs> but, but he is 
they built a big casino there mm-hmm. when he first bought the property and um and she came to the grand opening of that oh, and cool. his parents other times too. <gasps> That's awesome. Okay, current binge series. Well, um I am way behind the times on this, but we didn't have Apple TV. So we're watching Ted Lasso. Oh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's a good Love one. It. And it brings so much joy. There's yeah, so many good does. shows on Apple TV though. Now that you have it. Like yeah. morning shows really good. Oh, I hadn't even think about that. Yeah, that's really good. And then um, a show I'm watching right now called Blackbird is really good, but it's like really dark, but it, the acting is like really good. So you have... There's a whole world in Apple TV. Um, Last, last favorite book and current read. Let's see. Okay. So I've read this book before, but I was driving to book talk in Greenville, South Carolina, which is like two hours from me. So I wanted to listen to something Mm -hmm. and I love Beatrice Williams so much. I love her. She's great. She's just voicey. I love her. Just absorb into her books. They're so good. So I listened to the summer wives again, and, um, I just finished Lauren Edmondson's wedding of the season, which comes out, I believe in February, March, something like that. Um, it was really, really good. It's about, it's set in Newport. Um, obviously about a wedding uh, of this family. Who's kind of old, old money, Newport. Who's kind of not money, Newport anymore. Um, but just kind of the scandal and, and the glamor of an old time, you know, of having history at a place also finding your new footing, I guess, but it was a really good book. Loved that it. sounds really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's coming out. Okay. Good to know. We'll add it to our list. Um, describe your writing space. Okay. Well, currently my writing space is my patio because I, I don't know what my problem is, but it's like, it's very hot here still, but <laughs> my husband's like, it doesn't matter if it's sunny, you go outside and you'll just be sweating and writing. And yeah. <laughs> so it's usually the patio. If not, it is a desk in my kitchen that usually has kids stuff all over it. Um, for my debut novel, my kids are really little and I had to take a picture of it and it had just toys everywhere. You know, I was like reality, um, right? I do yeah. not have some, I don't really have some, you know, I don't have an office. I think it's cause I just love to be outside so much mm-hmm. that I just don't bother, um, with it, but yeah, mostly outside unless it's like raining or something like that. No, I'm sure it's so beautiful. Um, name something chic. All fashion from 1890 through 1940. Love it. Now I'm going to go on a deep dive. I don't really know a lot of like 1890, 1900s, more like twenties, thirties, forties, but I'll have to go on like a, do you have any like sites or books that you recommend? Well, kind of the pinnacle of fashion back then, or, you know, the person who's most famous for it was the house of worth. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was kind of there. It was very elaborate gowns and things like that. Um, fun thing is in the fifth Avenue artist society in real life, um, the milliner sister, the one who made the hats, she also made the girls dresses and she donated like hundreds of fashion plates to the Met. When mm-hmm. after she died, and so I've been able to look through those, and they're just—I uh, couldn't even tell you the designers off the top of my head, but just the amount of detail that went into one outfit was remarkable. And even thinking about Dorothy Draper and looking at her like just smart, like classic outfits and hats, and 
you know, I wear workout clothes <laughs> 99 yeah. of the time. Um, I am filthy 99% of the time. And I think about like my grandmas and the care in which they got ready every day mm-hmm. and like the quality of their clothing. Yeah. You didn't have tons of it. They didn't have, you know, you wouldn't have had closets and closets full of clothes, but it was just the care to which people put things together mm-hmm. um, that I think is really cool. And so she, it was, yeah, I feel like it was such a ritual for them. Like it was like, you're getting ready, like, and you're doing it from top to bottom, like hair, makeup, the shoes, the accessories, like, yeah. and now we're just so, you know, everything is based off time and like, I'm so busy and like, what's going to work. And, and I get that cause I totally fall in that category, but back then it was just so different. And like you said, everything was so unique and custom and, the detail there is, I don't know if you've ever, you probably have, but there's a really awesome podcast called dressed. Have you no, listened to that? Before? Oh my God. They have a whole episode on the house of worth, but they break it down from all different like periods, fashion periods, and they'll do deep dives on certain people in the fashion world. Um, and it's really fun. Like I've learned so much it's two fashion historians and they're like, it's really fun. You you'll be like obsessed once you start listening, but that is so cool. yeah, it's called dressed, but okay. Um, do you have a favorite book that you gift? I think they change seasonally probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and then whenever I get really excited about a book, I just hand it out left and right, you know, Share it. Um, recently I've gifted, um, magic season by Mm -hmm. Wade Rouse. Oh, I know he's so great. Everything he touches is like fabulous. The Viola Shipman books that he writes. Fantastic. Some of my absolute favorites. And then magic season. Loved it. I, Um, um, just had him on the podcast and I instantly was like, oh my God, like you're like the best friend that everybody dreams of. He's so awesome. Yeah. He's just so kind. So great. Yes. Um, and then such a great writer. And then also the lost book of Eleanor Dare by my friend, Kim Brock mm-hmm. that I love. I love, um, it's so, very Southern, um, very just like that Southern, um, not fantasy, but just that Southern kind of like brushes of magic, you know, it has mm-hmm. a little, little, touch of magic a lot of history it's historical fiction um set in savannah about the heirs of eleanor dare who was of the lost colony and just talking about mothers and daughters it's a it's kind of a home front book of world war ii um but it's really great and so i give it a lot and it's also very pretty which is yes the cover (laughs) is really pretty that's that is always fun um if you could have one song as the theme song of your life what would it be and why um, this is more aspirational, I think, than anything else. <laughs> but um, I love the whole like vibe behind Simple by Florida Georgia Line. Like I love the idea of simplicity and like in this life that we have that's just so nuts that to calm down and like really realize the importance of the small things. So I like that. I like the meaning behind that song. But I think if I was going to pick a vibe for my life, it'd probably be Happy by Pharrell because I mean, those are two, who, who doesn't want that? <laughs> I know. Those are two great themes to have for theme songs of your life. Um, must have beauty item. Um, lipstick and mascara. I had to mm-hmm. say two. 
Um, I will say though, I have been made fun of so much by my makeup um, friends that are just like wonderful artists on that side of things. Because until recently, I I got into I got into lipstick actually because a friend of mine started selling lip scents and yeah. it stays on forever. And so loved that. Um, but a friend of mine, he used to work for Mac, was just dying because we went to a concert before and I'm like pulling out my um Dr. Pepper chapstick and I was putting it on. She was like, is that your lipstick? And I was like, yes. So that's kind of that's kind of my uh my general usual like makeup vibe. I'm very yeah. It's very like, oh, this looks fine. Let's just take it out, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) I've been trying to get better about it over the last couple of years. I have actually went into Sephora and I was like, please help me. I need help. And they they helped you. Yeah, Yeah, but I've always worn mascara. I look weird without mascara. And I do think there is something to be said about our moms who always said, don't leave the house without lipstick. You look more awake when you have it on. You do. You do. And, and that's the same thing with mascara. I feel like it just opens up your eye. Just, it can make the world of difference. So I, I appreciate both of those, those must-haves. Um, okay. Lipstick. If you could name one lipstick after a book, what would you call it? And what shade would it be? This is actually pretty easy. I would call it in the pink because that was one of Carlton Varney's first books about Dorothy Draper's designs. Yeah. And it would be a bright summery pink color. I think it could work really well. I feel like that's, I mean, and I feel like he would love that. He, mm-hmm. I think he would, you would get his stamp of approval on that. That's a, that's a great selection. Okay. And last best advice you've ever received. Um, you know, there's a lot of advice you get about being persistent and things like that. And of course I've heard those and appreciate them, but, um, from a professional standpoint and also personal, um, one of my writer friends, Kim Wright, actually told me early on in my career, make the effort to get to know people face to face. Even if it means you got to get on a plane, even if it means you got to drive pretty far, um, meet your people, you know, meet your people that work with you, meet your author friends, make the effort with your friends you've had for a long time. Just be present, be there with them and make the effort. You're never going to regret it. And that's really true. I love that, especially now where like so many things have shifted to like online and this, and then it's like, even like I was saying last night for, for the school night, you know, it's been like three years since they've had like an in-person school night. And like the teachers were like, this is amazing. And I'm like, it is like, it's just so much better when you can just be there and like feel and just know, you know, so that's great. That's great advice. And for you too, like to go see your readers, like I'm sure with the pandemic and everything, things obviously changed for authors. They shifted to Zooms and stuff. But, you know, I felt like the one consistent theme was everyone's like, I can't wait to get back out and like see and meet my readers. And, you know, authors obviously come and, you know. Yeah. And the nice thing is at least, at least with Zoom, you can see each other. I think that'd be be difficult to just have like, you know, audio conversations or emails, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. it's so easy when you see people's facial expressions, you get to see their tone, you get to see their personality a lot more, a lot better, mm-hmm. clearer than you would other ways. So it's so nice to be able to do that. And that's how I feel like you really make like lasting friendships and lasting connections yeah. is by personally knowing someone and making an effort to do it. Totally agree. And where can people follow you on Instagram? Cause I will say that you 
especially if they are interested in Dorothy or read the grand design, like you're so good about posting and like putting up these fun facts and tidbits and like so many photos. And I like love that so much and appreciate it because I feel like it's just another level to who you are and like your writing in the books. Thanks. Um, my Instagram handle is joy W cal. So it's just J Y W C A L. Perfect. And everyone should totally follow you, read the grand design, go on a Dorothy Draper deep dive. Like it is so fun. I feel like now I want to learn even more. And just from what I've seen, like you said, I feel like it's just joy to, to sort of dive into her world, which is so amazing and your joy. So that's So thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. Thank you for having me. It's been such a fun day. I'm so glad. And everyone, please pick up the grand design and follow Joy. And I will talk to you soon.